Romans chapter 1, verse 2 is our text for today. This is the second sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages, and the title of our sermon today is The Paradox of Old News. The Paradox of Old News. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1, and as I preach today, please keep in mind throughout the entirety of the sermon that God loves you. I will read today Romans 1, 1, 1, 2, and the first phrase in 1, 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, once again, we want to acknowledge our dependence upon you. Lord, please remove pride from the preacher, thinking that I can take what I have studied and present it to the people and a change will be wrought. For Lord, my words are just words. Lord, they must be accompanied by your spirit. Father, please remove pride from the listener today, the listener who thinks that he or she knows it all, the listener who is initially disinterested, the listener who is given to daydreaming. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would arrest the attention of every listener and that your word would explode in their hearts today as the power of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So our outline today, our outline today from Romans chapter 1 verse 2, point number one is what is the gospel? And you'll see that I have three subpoints under that. And then the second point is also a question, and that is, what is the Old Testament? And I also have three subpoints from that, and that is going to be answered in large part from that one verse, from uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. What is the Old Testament? Now, by way of review, when last we met, we covered Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It is a verse in which Paul introduces himself, and as part of that introduction, he told his audience that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Look at the end of verse 1. He was set apart for the gospel of God, set apart for the good news of God. Well, as we move into verse 2, Paul adds a descriptor to this gospel of God, a feature of the gospel of God which his audience needs to know. Now let's keep in mind the big picture. Paul's overarching purpose in writing this long letter addressed to the Romans was to address and to correct conflicts between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But before he gets to his main purpose, he first has to establish his own credibility in their eyes. Why? Because these people have never met him. And so he takes the first eight chapters to establish himself. Question, how does he go about establishing his credibility and earning their trust? The answer is by giving a detailed account of what he believes the gospel to be. That is chapters 1 through 8. Now, once he has then established what the gospel is and thus built his credibility sufficiently, he then goes on to address the Jew-Gentile conflict in chapters 9 through 11. Well, even in the introduction to this book, the customary greeting which would be used in that day, which was chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, even in his opening greetings, Paul is already hard at work establishing his gospel. And in verse 1, which we covered in the first sermon, as I stated earlier, he ends verse 1 with the phrase, the gospel of God. Now as we move into verse 2, our text for today, he immediately describes an essential component of the gospel of God, namely that it was promised in the Old Testament. Look at the verse, which he promised beforehand through his prophets 
in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want to give a note concerning the sentence structure here of the first three verses. Please note that verse 2 is, in effect, sort of a parenthetical phrase, um, uh, a phrase which has parentheses around it. Now, even though in Greek there is no such thing, it still has that effect as we read it. Uh, the reason I say that is because if you read the end of verse 1, I want you to look at your, at your own Bible here. As you look at the end of verse 1, you will see that it fits perfectly into verse 3. So if verse 2 were to be set, subtracted, the end of verse 1 into verse 3 would flow very logically. Uh, notice what it says. Uh, notice how it fits. Look at your Bible. End of verse 1. The gospel of God, skip verse 2, into verse 3, the gospel of God concerning his son. But instead of Paul doing it that way, what Paul chooses to do is he chooses to interrupt himself and to insert an important truth about the origin of the gospel. Or to put it another way, he talks about the gospel before it was the gospel. Uh, again, what is that gospel before it was the gospel? Verse 2, which he promised beforehand. What, who is he? He is God. What did he promise? He promised the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, how valuable is this interruption? Well, let me put it this way. This interruption in verse 2 has to be extremely important because you do not interrupt the words the gospel of God concerning his son, unless you have something really important to say. You cannot interrupt that phrase with something which is trivial or incidental. When someone is talking, and they're talking about something that is very important, and you must interrupt them, make sure that when you interrupt them, you have something which is really important to say. Paul interrupts himself with something which is an essential truth, which begs the question... Why would it be necessary to inform or to remind these Romans that the gospel of God was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures? Now, that is our task for today. And so we're going to study verse 2, and we're going to attempt to discern its function in, God's, in Paul's gospel message. And to help us out, I have provided you with a two-point outline, each of which has three sub-points. So let's get right to work. Both of the points come in the form of questions. Here's question number one. What is the gospel? And again, I'm asking the question, what is the gospel from Romans 1, 2. Uh, in popular evangelical culture, if you were to say, what is the gospel? The answer would be, it is a black book written by Greg Gilbert, which we give to all of our visitors. If you are a visitor of our church and you've not yet received one of these, please see me or one of the ushers and we will give you the book entitled, What is the Gospel? In the broader sense, if we ask the question, what is the gospel? Well, it is of first importance and it is that message that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again to life. That is the broad definition of the gospel. But if we narrow our focus to Romans chapter 1, verse 2, and we ask the question, what is the gospel? We will begin with our first sub-point, and that is that the gospel is not new. The gospel is not new. The word gospel, ironically, means good news. At 6 p.m., you turn on your television not to watch the olds, but to watch the news, that which is current, that which is up to date, that which you do not yet already know. The History Channel does not have a newscast. The History Channel doesn't even have history anymore, but that's a, another sermon for another day. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, Paul goes out of his way to say that the news is not new. Thus, our title today, The Paradox of Old News. It certainly isn't new for us because Jesus died for our sins 2,000 years ago. 
And in a sense, even though the crucifixion and the resurrection for Paul's audience was only about 20 to 25 years before Paul wrote the book of Romans, Paul makes the point in verse 2 that the gospel, this message of redemption, is not a newfangled novelty which was recent or a modern invention. Paul says that the news is old. And notice how he does it. He does it with a redundant phrase, promised beforehand, Uh, redundant. You don't need both of those words. You could use either one of them and it would get the job done. But he uses both of them. He uses both words to make the point. And the point is this. He wants to accentuate that this information I'm about to give you is not modern. It was promised beforehand. By definition, something which was promised does come beforehand. Something which was beforehand, which was given, is by definition a promise. Promised beforehand is redundant, but Paul says it was promised beforehand so that you will know there is nothing new about this. It was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. You see, when Paul wrote this, there was no New Testament. So the Holy Scriptures refers to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament was written in a period, and I'm going to round off numbers for the next several moments. It was written in a period of about 1,000 years, from about 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. And remember, when you're doing the B.C.s, the numbers get smaller when you get closer to Christ. Let me just show you, rounding off the numbers, how the gospel is really old. First of all, let's go back to the year 500 B.C. and note that Zechariah preached the gospel in the Old Testament when he wrote in Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me, on him they have pierced. Speaking of Jesus being pierced on the cross. 500 years is a long time. That's twice as old as the United States of America. But that gospel was preached 500 years before Jesus comes along. Well, let's go back even further. Isaiah preached the gospel in the Old Testament in 700 B.C. when he wrote in chapter 53, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah preached the gospel in 700 B.C. David preached the gospel in the Old Testament in 1000 B.C., when he wrote in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Moses preached the gospel in 1400 BC when he wrote in Exodus 12, 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter three, verse eight, that God preached the gospel to Abraham And he did this in about 2000 BC, Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Now that is a very, very, uh, that, that verse is really full of information, but I hope that you can just strip down to the bare bones and see God in 2000 BC preaches the gospel to Abraham, telling him that through him Gentiles would be saved. The very first gospel sermon was also preached by God in the Garden of Eden in approximately 4000 BC in what the theologians call the proto-evangelium. Proto, like a prototype, the first evangelium, a fancy way of saying evangelism, the gospel, the first gospel, the first gospel was the proto-evangelium, and it was preached by God, and it was spoken to Satan in Genesis 3.15, and Satan is told that the seed of the woman, that is Jesus, will crush or bruise your head. But it is even older than that, Because we read in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, God's purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus, here we go, before the world began. So you know we throw that phrase around from Ecclesiastes 1.9 all the time, there's nothing new under the sun. That is true, there's nothing new under the sun. That can especially be said of the gospel. There is nothing new 
about the good news. So I was on vacation this past week, and on vacation I needed to study for this sermon, and I did not want to carry my commentaries with me, so I came up with a brilliant idea. Here's what I said I'm going to do. I took my phone, first time I've ever had my phone in the pulpit, I took my phone, and I took pictures of over 200 pages of commentaries. So (laughs) click, click. So now here I am, I I am sitting by myself in a secluded area of the cruise ship, sun is beating down upon me, obviously, and and as it is, I am trying to study, and I'm looking at my phone, and as I look at it, and I try to enlarge it, the the page flips, like it, it flips, and so when I turn my phone this way, then it flips another way. So finally, I'm like, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna leave it like this. I know I'm gonna need a chiropractor. I'm just gonna turn my head and, and read it like that. And for hours, I'm sitting there, and this thing is just, it's just playing tricks on me. A few hours later, Anna comes, sits down with me. I said, this is just, I'm not getting anywhere. I mean, you're gonna be a poor sermon today. You'll know why. And Anna says, why don't you lock your screen? What do you like? What do you mean? She says, you, you can you can lock your screen. I says, what does that even mean? She says, do this, do that. So I do this. You know, I, I flip down and I said, where? She goes, well, where the lock is. And I pushed it, and magically, it stayed still. Now, what is the point of this illustration? First of all, I said to her, when did they put this on my phone? She said, it has been there all the time. It was new to me, but it wasn't new. This gospel might be new to you, but it is in no way new. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who lived from 1899 to 1981, was a great preacher. He's from Wales. He preached in London, uh, writing about the gospel that Paul Uh, was writing about, and he says, it is new in that the historical events had just taken place when, when Paul wrote this, but it is most certainly not new in the sense that God is in some way coming up with some new idea or theory, end quote, and you have always been able to lock your screen whether you knew it or not. Which brings us to our next sub-point in answering the question, what is the gospel? And it's very similar to the first one, but it's slightly nuanced and different, and that is, it is not original. It is not original to Paul. Uh, Very closely linked to the first point, but it's distinct in terms of Paul's strategy to establish his credibility. That is that Paul wants them to know that it was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And since it was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, it is not my idea. Remember, Paul is trying to establish his credibility. Who is this Paul guy and what is his gospel? So what Paul does in order to establish his credibility is he points out that the origin of the gospel is from the Old Testament. Paul is saying, I love the gospel, I preach the gospel, the gospel saved me, but I didn't invent it. It is not original with me. It was God's idea from the very beginning. And this can bring a very practical point of application for you in your reading of the Bible and your reading of redemptive history. And that is, please do not read redemptive history with this lens, that God somehow was attempting to bring about salvation and redemption through the law and through the nation of Israel. He gave it his best try, but it failed. And then when it failed, God says, well, what are we going to do now? Let's come up with plan B. I mean, the old covenant didn't work. Let's try something new. Let's try the gospel. No, a million times no. That is not the way to read the Bible. It makes no sense whatsoever to promise the gospel in the Old Testament if your original plan is to bring about redemption through Israel and the law. You don't promise the gospel if you you think that what you're doing is going to work. It is not the way 
to view it. The gospel was God's original plan. The gospel is God's first plan. The gospel is God's only plan. And it originated in the mind of God, not in the mind of Paul. And the gospel was written down in the sacred writings long before Paul was born. Which brings us to our final observation in answering the question in Roman numeral one, what is the gospel? And that is, it is loving. Remember that God loves you. And the way that we know from this verse that God loves you is that the verse says that it was promised. You use the language of promise for those whom you love. It doesn't say that it was prophesied, although indeed it was prophesied. It doesn't say it was predicted, although indeed it was predicted. It doesn't say it was threatened or warned, although there are gospel warnings in the Old Testament, but the language that is used here is the language of love in Romans 1-2, and it is that of promise. I was not aware how often the New Testament refers to God's words in the Old Testament as promises. When I'd studied this week, I was both shocked and pleased. Let me give you just three examples. First of all, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Acts chapter 13, verse 32 And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that God promised to the fathers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God's heart in the Old Testament is repeatedly speaking words of love to his people over and over and over, saying, I give you my word, I promise, I will send a redeemer, I will send a savior. And God's promise is so secure that we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, that when God made this promise, he did it by swearing an oath, which is a super sacred promise, and Since God couldn't swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore by himself to bless Abraham. And these promises which God made were not empty. They were fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ Jesus. So the question needs to be asked, why does God make so many promises in the Old Testament? The answer is to give his people hope. What if God had made no promises and he just did what he was going to do? You know, he could do that. He's God, he can do whatever he wants to do. But in love, he gives his people hope by giving them promises. If they didn't have promises, they would be aimless. So our loving God promises the gospel in the Old Testament and fulfills those promises completely with the coming of Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel isn't new. What is the gospel? The gospel isn't original with Paul. What is the gospel? It is loving in that it is loaded with promises from the Old Testament, which brings us to Roman numeral two, what is the Old Testament? And once again, we're not answering this in an overarching way, but we are trying to confine our answer to the text, largely from Romans chapter one, verse two, What is the Old Testament? But before we get to our outline, I just want to throw this in as a bonus point, and that is the Old Testament is big. If you consider that the entire Bible is 1,189 chapters, and it is all the Word of God, it is significant to note that 39 out of the 66 books of the Bible are in the Old Testament. But that doesn't really tell us anything because some books are bigger than others. The way that you determine how big something is is by the number of words. So what I want you to do is I want you to take your pencil or your pen and I want you to write down where you are taking notes what your guess is as to how big the Old Testament is with respect to what percent of it uh, is, is the Old Testament, what percent is the New Testament. I'll give you the answer here. And this statistic was stunning to me. And that is that 77.42% of all of the words in the Bible are found in the Old Testament. 
Three quarters, over three quarters of God's communication is in the Old Testament. So it is big. And and so if it's big, it's it's got to be important. So with that in mind, let's go into our first sub point. And that is, what is the gospel or what what is the Old Testament essentially? And that is, its essence is divine. Divine, coming from God. Its essence is divine. Notice in verse 2 the word he, which he promised. Well, who is the he? He, goes back to verse 1, he is referring to God, the gospel of God, which he promised. And even though the prophets were the ones writing down the words, God is the one who was speaking, and therefore since God is the one who is speaking, it is important But our verse shows even further that it is divine in that it is called the Holy Scriptures. And maybe your copy of the Bible says somewhere on it, Holy Bible. Now the word holy can mean pure or or perfect, Uh, even as we read this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19.7. But the word holy can also mean separate or unique. And I want you to think of the Bible in this way, and that is that the words uh, are not just ancient writings, but they are uniquely the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, that is the Old Testament, is breathed out by God. And as it is breathed out by God, it, 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 is, it is essential. It is necessary. God is not going to say something that is not necessary. They are foundational for our understanding of the gospel. 20 years ago, Anna and I went to see a Civil War movie in Manhattan. The name of the movie was entitled Gods and Generals. Um, it is a three-hour and 39-minute movie. Um, so it has an intermission. So we buy our tickets, we go in, we sit down, and the movie comes on. And, and as the movie comes on, it's very unusual. There are no opening credits, there is no opening music, there is just a battle. It is an important battle, uh, I'm sure, but there is no context for the battle at all. We're just watching this battle, and, and, and I'm just feeling, okay, I know some things about the Civil War, but... I have like zero context here as to what is going on, who is fighting, where are they fighting, why are they fighting. And finally, a man in the theater stands up and says, I think they're showing us the second half of the movie. So he walks into the lobby, he speaks to the manager, the manager walks in a few minutes later and apologizes and says, bear with us ladies and gentlemen, we will start the movie in its proper order. He starts the movie, we watch the first half of the movie, we have our intermission, then when we come back to watch the second half, we understand which battle it is, where it happened and why it happened. Well, when you do not know the first 77.42% of the movie, it's hard to pick it up and follow it to the end. And when you do not know 77.42% of God's divine revelation, you don't see the gospel for for all that it's worth. You can't see the full meaning of the gospel without the Old Testament. What do we have foundationally in the Old Testament? What do we learn that we need to know? Well, there are key gospel truths, such as creation and the origin of sin and and the severity of judgment. We learn in the Old Testament the character of God, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his patience, his justice, his righteous standards, and his love. We learn in the Old Testament what faith is. Everything in Hebrews 11 is from the Old Testament, and that is a definition of what faith is. We learn what holiness is. We learn the importance of blood sacrifice. And we learn over and over and over again that we are bad, that we are really bad, we are vile, and that we are unworthy. Now, I could watch the second half of the movie and maybe pick up on a few things, but it is not going to be clear to me unless I have watched the first half of the movie. The New Testament is not clear without the Old Testament. And therefore, the better we understand and know the Old Testament, the more beautiful the New Testament gospel becomes. 
The Old Testament is divine in its nature. It's not just God uh, killing time or adding filler in order to make a thicker book. It is essential information. So the addition or the interruption of Romans chapter 1, verse 2 is not just a, oh, by the way, or I thought you would find this little tidbit to be cool, or how about this side note? No, this is an essential element to understanding the gospel. You need chapter 1, verse 2 in order to understand the gospel. It is so important that Paul puts this at the very front of his letter, and the reason why that is true is because he, Paul, in writing the letter to the Romans, is going to, for the rest of the book, lean very heavily upon the assumption that you know the Old Testament. He is going to write about Adam and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and Moses and Pharaoh and David and Isaiah and others. Now, you don't know who these people are without the Old Testament. Also, you need to understand the way that Paul operates. Paul, when he is writing, will often put a quotation in his writing from the Old Testament. You know that Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament? Do you know that over one half of his references of the Old Testament in the New Testament come from the book of Romans? Over half of the quotations that Paul uses from the Old Testament are in the book of Romans. Paul's personal preaching style, his evangelism, his method of reaching the lost was to start with the Old Testament. There are many examples. We don't have time for them today. I'm just going to give you the clearest one, and that is in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, when he goes into Thessalonica, and notice what it says. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he, Paul, reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The way that he preached was to use the Old Testament. And when Paul gives his quintessential definition of what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, I want you to know that he belabors the point that this gospel has its foundation in the Old Testament scriptures. Turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see it. You've probably noticed it before, but if you haven't, it is a really, really important feature. Paul is saying, I'm going to give you the gospel, which is of first importance. And, 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 and here's what you need to note about this gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, here we go, in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I can remember when I first started sharing the gospel in college using, through Campus Crusade for Christ, the little uh, sort of orange-yellow book called The Four Spiritual Laws, and, and in it is the gospel, and it has 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4. And I can remember as a 19-year-old freshman in college being frustrated that in this little track, they would include the words in accordance with the scriptures. I mean, first of all, my foolishness knows no boundaries that I think that I could write the Bible better than it has been written. Have you ever done that? Have you ever written something, read something in the Bible and said, you know, if I was writing it, I would, I would, I would put it a different way. So I'm saying, you know, why don't, they, you know, why don't we just say Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again. Why does it have to say in accordance with the scriptures? Not only was I a fool, but I was wrong. And that is that the gospel must be in accordance with the scriptures or it's not the gospel. It's not enough for Jesus to die. It's not enough for Jesus to be raised. It has to be in accordance with the scriptures in order for it to be efficacious or to be effective. And so 
Paul puts it at the front of his letter, chapter 1, verse 2, and, and, and he does it in order to establish this is going to be the paradigm through which we view everything that I am about to write. He quotes the Old Testament. It is his practice to preach it. He uses it in his illustrations, in his reasoning, in his parameters. It all comes from and is in precisely in line with the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. But now let's be clear. The Old Testament is divine. It is God's word. It is true. It is accurate. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is without contradiction. It is without error. But let's be honest. It is also not the complete story. It's essential, but it is not the finished product. We get the rest of the story in the final 22.58% of the Bible, also known as the New Testament. Robert Haldane was a biblical theologian. He was a, a man who was born in London in 1764. He died in Scotland in 1842. Uh, he has written a superb commentary on the book of Romans. I think he gave the best illustration of what the Old Testament is. Uh, let me read it to you. Speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, they were in substance an embryo of the gospel itself and consequently foretold and prepared the way for a more perfect development, end quote. Did you get that? Haldane says the Old Testament is an embryo of the gospel. I think that's a perfect illustration. We oppose abortion. Why do we oppose abortion? Does it have anything to do with economics? Does it have anything to do with um, uh, being associated with one political party or another? No, not at all. No, no. We oppose abortion for one main reason, and that is that in the womb of the pregnant woman is an image bearer of God. There is a human being in there. Is it fully developed? Oh, absolutely not. Is it independent? Well, you know it's not. Do you know what the child is going to be like? No, you do not. Do you know their personality? No, you don't know anything about that at all. But even though those specific factors are not yet revealed, here's what you do know. It is a human being, and that human being is just as human as you or me. And to have an abortion is to commit a murder because what you are doing is you are killing a living human being. Likewise, as Mr. Haldane says, the Old Testament is the embryo of the gospel. The word of God is the word of God in the New Testament. And the New Testament has clarity, the clarity of Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. The gospel is of first importance, Jesus rising again. Those who call upon him will be saved. It is just there with 2020 clarity. But the word of God is also the word of God in the Old Testament, in the shadows of the gospel, the types of Jesus Christ, the promises, and sometimes the foggy images. And even though you see that woman and, and, and she's, she's got one of these, and you're saying, okay, can't really tell. Is it a boy or a girl? Can't tell. There's one thing I can tell you. There's a human being in there. You look at the Old Testament, sometimes, yeah, you know, not really sure what's going on, but I, here's what I can tell you. The gospel is in there. And so, as we continue on with our outline, please know from this subpoint that the, that the gospel is divine, that the Old Testament is divine. Continuing with our, our, our outline, answering the question, what is the Old Testament from Romans chapter 1, 2? Notice that its transmission is concursive. C-O-N-C-U-R-S-I-V-E. Its transmission is concursive. So, how many of you own an automobile? Either you or someone in your family owns an automobile. So you know... Uh, unbelievable. Let's try this again. How many of you own an automobile? Very good. Excellent. All right. Uh, all right. So what is the transmission? 
The transmission is how the power gets from the engine, vroom, 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 to the wheels, to the axle. So you have this engine, which is powerful. You have the wheels on the bus, which go round and round. How does the energy get from the engine to the wheels? Something in the middle, it's called a transmission. It transmits the power. Well, Romans chapter one, verse two, tells us how the word of God, which is power, gets from God to us. We are the wheels on the bus. Romans chapter one, verse two, God promised, that is divine, and it is a divine promise of the gospel. So the origin is the power, and then the tranny here is is his prophets, the human means in the Holy Scripture, the mode. So the, the, the prophets and the writing are the mode. The power is God. The, the, the transmission are the prophets and the writing. And we, we are the recipients. We are the wheels on the bus. When theologians speak of concursive operation, it, it simply means con with writing, with writing. Um, they're saying that the Bible is 100% divine, and it is also 100% human. Listen to how Kevin DeYoung puts it. He says that concursive operation is the term used to describe the process of inspiration, meaning that God used the intellect, skills, and personality of fallible men to write down what was divine and infallible. The Bible is, in one sense, both human and both a human and divine book. But this in no way implies that any there is any fallibility in the scriptures. The dual authorship of scripture does not necessitate imperfection any more than the two natures of Christ mean that our Savior must have sinned. End quote. And I understand that's a bit heady, so I will explain it in another way. Jesus, is he God or is he man? Both. The answer is yes. Uh, salvation, uh, is God sovereign or are we responsible? Both. Yes, both are true. The Bible, is it human or is it divine? The answer is yes, it is both. And just because fallible human beings were permitted to participate in the process of writing God's word does not mean that the finished product is errant. Because we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that God used the authors of Scripture as stenographers. God comes to Moses one day and says, all right, you have your quill? You got your parchment? Great. Okay. I'm getting ready to communicate my word. Are you ready? Here we go. In the beginning. In the beginning. God created. God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the heavens, plural heavens, and the earth. Okay, pretty good. Let's see what you've got here. All right, Moses. Two ends in beginning, two ends in beginning, otherwise it looks good. All right, you ready for verse two? No, that's not the way the Bible was written. Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and Isaiah and the rest of the prophets wrote what they wrote using their own vocabulary, their own literary style, yet every concept, every event, every word was directed by the Holy Spirit such that the final product is the word of God. So before we move on, I think it's very important that we pause and contemplate the way that God decided to communicate. The word scriptures literally means writings, a movie script, or a, a doctor will write a prescription. The prophets, that is his prophets, they weren't independent, they were, notice the verse says his prophets, his prophets gave us the word, not through dreams, not through movies, not through visions, not through speeches, not through oral tradition. The Roman Catholic Church banks much of their doctrine on oral tradition. We bank 100% 
of our doctrine on the written word of God. The written, and the key word is script, scripture, written word of God. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Now it is true in Hebrews 1.1 that God spoke in various ways at various times to the fathers through the prophets. However, that which was to be permanent is the written word of God. And this is what Jesus says when he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It is written, it is written, it is written. Holy Scripture was written. Scriptures. Now God could have done it another way. He could have employed other means. Could have, he, could have, he could have put his message in cloud formations or he could have just spoken with an audible voice from heaven or he could have implanted some kind of a device in your ear which would direct you. But he, the all-wise God, who was wise enough and powerful enough to create the universe and loving enough to give his son for us, chose the means of the written word in order to communicate. And therefore, that reason alone... We ought to prioritize, but I mean, I haven't said anything profound this morning. Like, I don't think that you're learning anything. This is all a reminder, but, but here, here's the point of application. Since it is written, does it not then make sense that we ought to prioritize the reading of the word of God? You should read the Bible. What you learn in church today? I learned that I should read the Bible. And we should be very thankful for the beautiful miracle, which is the written word of God through concursive operation. thousand years from now, man, you know, there's not going to be anyone except some extreme geek somewhere who's even going to know who Donald Trump or who Joe Biden were. Like, like they, they are not, no, nobody is going to know who they were. But a thousand years from now, the Bible is going to be alive and active. Which brings me to our final sub-point in answering the question, what is the Old Testament? And the answer is, its point is Jesus. Go back to the sentence structure. Remember, going from verse 1 to verse 3, the gospel of God concerning his son, and then the insertion of the parenthetical aside, which is verse 2, which, which, and remember that verse two also connects to verse three, so that the promised gospel of God in the Old Testament is through the writings of the prophets in the scriptures, and it is concerning God's son, Jesus. The point of the Bible is Jesus, and the Old Testament is in the Bible. Let me say that again. The point of the Bible is Jesus, and the Old Testament is the Bible. Like Mr. Haldane's embryo metaphor, it's not always clear in the Old Testament, but Jesus still is the point of the Old Testament. And Paul essentially says this in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets. That is, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's manifested apart from the Old Testament although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, there is a clear manifestation of the righteousness of God in the New Testament, namely faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul says that the Old Testament is not a different story with a different goal. The Old Testament takes the witness stand, if you will. I think this is pretty clever. And the Old Testament puts its hand on the Bible and says, I swear to tell the truth, and here's the truth. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ is found in me. The language is not going to be as clear as the New Testament, but the message is still there. So when someone says something like this, you know, there are different religious books. The Quran is for Muslims. The Old Testament is for Jews and Judaism. The New Testament is for Christians and the church. That is altogether wrong. The Old Testament and the New Testament are both for Christians. 
And if those reading the Old Testament don't see Jesus as the point of the Old Testament, they do not understand it at all. I mean, not at all. They are missing the point altogether. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul speaks of Jews who know the Old Testament but don't know the true meaning of the Old Testament. And he writes, For to this day, when they, that is the Jews, read the Old Covenant, that same veil or covering remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. You need Christ in order to exegete or explain the Old Testament. Unless you see Jesus as the point of the Old Testament, you are missing the point of the Old Testament altogether. So friends, it is all one book with one divine author. It is one story. And Jesus says in John 10.35, he gives this little parenthetical phrase, and he says at the end of John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. This is why Jesus, when he is walking on the road to Emmaus on the day in which he was raised from the dead. This is this, first of all, just the distance and the time ought to blow your mind. On the day when he came to life, the most glorious day that he ever had, there was not a parade. He wasn't signing autographs. He takes a seven-mile walk. And during that walk, of all of the things that he could have talked about, what did he choose to talk about? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. Here's Jesus on the greatest day that the universe has ever known. He's on a seven-mile walk, and he has a discussion, and what does he say? Verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, that is the two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That is what they spoke about in the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things, die on the cross, and enter into his glory? Didn't you see when you were reading the Old Testament that the Messiah had to die and then be raised to life? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, who is the first author in the Old Testament, and all the prophets, that is all the way through Malachi, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, in all the writings, in all the holy scriptures, the things concerning himself. They get to the house. He goes in to have a meal with them. They sit down to eat. He blesses the food. <laughs> this is crazy. Boom, he disappears. Okay, so he disappears. After he disappears, what is it that they say in verse 32? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Never mind the vanishing man act. What really they wanted to talk about was how Christ was seen in the Old Testament scriptures. Wow. What do you look for when you read the Old Testament? What do you see when you read the Old Testament? Um, if you walk out through this door, across the tiny hallway, into the educational building, you will see that there is a mural on the wall painted by former intern Tirza Racy's, now Tirza Maupin, because she married former intern Joel Maupin. Uh, here's one of your points of application. I want you to walk past it. I want you to study it. On this wall right here, it says, search the scriptures. And, and then as you turn the corner, it, it, it is a quote from John 5.39, and, 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 and it is in the old King James. And as you turn the corner, it says, you know, so search the scriptures. These are they, that is, the scriptures are they, which testify of me. And below these writings, there are artistic renderings of Old Testament and New Testament stories, which are all about Jesus. 
There's Noah's Ark. There's Abraham and Isaac. There's the serpent on the pole. There's the water from the rock. There's David and Goliath. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's the birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. They are all stories which point to or are about Jesus. And notice the phrase, they testify of me, or these are they which testify of me. This is Jesus talking in John 5.39. Now moving from the King James to the ESV, he says in John 5.39, you search the scriptures. Either you study the Bible, or you should study the Bible, or I want you to study the Bible, or as you study the Bible, but as you are looking at the Old Testament scriptures, you think that because of them you have eternal life. In other words, based upon your reading and your hermeneutic, what you think is saying, you think that you're right with God and you think that you're going to heaven, but you are wrong, and let me tell you why you are wrong, Jesus says to his enemies. Why? Because the verse concludes, and it is they, that is the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. Translation, since you don't see me in the Old Testament, your confidence in eternal life is unfounded. And so in closing, I want to ask you today two questions. First thing I want to ask you, we've been talking about the gospel. I just want to ask you about the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Do do you know Jesus? Have you been saved? Do you understand that you are a guilty sinner? Do you want, I, pr- I prayed for you at the beginning of the service that if you weren't saved, you would be saved. Do you understand that, that, that God loves sinners and he sent Jesus to die on the cross in place of sinners? Do you understand that he's risen, that he's alive today? Do you understand that if in faith you call upon him, you can be saved? Are you saved? That is my question to you. And if not, I would love to talk to you. So please approach me and let's have a conversation about the gospel. Here's my second question to you. Do you give proper respect and attention to the Old Testament? And by that I mean, do you know it? Do you read it? Do you look for Jesus in it? Do you see Jesus in it? Is the regular consumption of the Old Testament part of your spiritual diet? Or do you just kind of breeze over it or or neglect it or ignore it or say, I'm kind of a New Testament-only type person? Well, Friends, let me take you back to that statistic. God has chosen to communicate. The means by which he has chosen to communicate is through the written word. 77.42% of God's written communication ought to get your attention. So you should read it and you should know it. Not so as to win an Old Testament trivia contest. Not as a history book, although the history is accurate. Not as really cool stories, but they really are the coolest stories in all of literature, but that's not why you read it. Not for morals and rules, although there are morals and rules, but that's not why you read it. You don't read it to say that you read it. You read it to look for Christ. Let me close with this illustration. The year is 1957. There is a young man who is going off to be a freshman about an hour north of his home, north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's on the football team, and he's walking through the study lounge at the dorm, and he sees two upperclassmen sitting, reading the Bible together. Now, this young man had been raised in a church, but he had never heard the gospel, and he had never in his life actually seen someone reading the Bible or studying the Bible. But these two upperclassmen are reading the Bible. One of them calls him over and says, here, sit down at the table, and he takes the Bible and he pushes it in front of this freshman, and he says, here, read this verse. What do you think of this verse? And the verse that the young man is asked to read is Ecclesiastes Chapter 11, verse 3, which says, If a tree falls in the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. No idea what that means. The man reading that verse, we know him better as R.C. Sproul. Sproul leaves the study lounge, goes back to his room under deep conviction, and he writes, that was I. I was the tree. I was the fallen tree, dead and rotting, just lying there on the ground. And that night in his dorm, he calls out for God to have mercy upon him. Friends, I think we can find a more obscure verse in the Old Testament, although I don't know what it would be. 
But that is the living word of God from the Old Testament which God used to save R.C. Sproul. And so I say to you today, do not despise it. Do not think lightly of it. Do not skim over it. Do not neglect it, but be a vigorous consumer of the Old Testament. And as you are reading it, pay attention and look for Christ because the gospel is God is in it. The gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And as you read, please keep in mind that God loves you. All right. Romans, two verses down, 431 to go. (laughs) Your applications this week are to make sure you are saved, to be a reader and consumer of the Old Testament looking for Christ, and to walk into the educational building and look at the mural and see if you can detect where Christ is in those stories. Father in heaven, I thank you for this joyful time that we've had together in your word, now in Jesus' name. Please, Lord, please never allow us to neglect or to think lightly about the first three quarters of the information which you gave us in your word, but help us to read it and to look for Christ and to glory when we see your Son in it. In his name we pray, amen.